Hi, everybody. This is Pastor Tim from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire. This is our weekly podcast of the sermon from the prior Sunday. Normally at this time, I have invited everybody to join us for worship at 8, 30, and 11. Uh, but right now we're in the midst of the global pandemic, and so we are not having worship in our building at 8, 30, and 11. Instead, you can find us online doing virtual worship using Zoom. You can find the information for all of that on our website at www.htelc.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And uh, those are the two primary ways in which to find our links to have worship with us. So it doesn't matter where you are, as long as you have an internet connection, you can join us for worship. So thank you for listening. We hope that you find the sermon meaningful and purposeful, that it connects to your life and how you interact with the world. And most of all, it reveals God's infinite love for you and all of creation. We continue our service with the gospel reading, which comes from Rich. Today's gospel reading comes from the first chapter of Mark. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the peoples of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rich. We continue with the sermon. Normally I have some type of uh, cartoon, comic, uh, funny image of a pastor, things like this. Normally I don't title my sermons. If I were to title this sermon, it would be called The Sin of the American Church. I honestly have, and I started to say this before, I have probably given this sermon about five different times uh, throughout this week, wanting to address the issues going on in the country, but not just talk about the issues within the country, talk about what led up to these issues and what is going on underneath that allows this to even occur, that we all participate in in some level. So, I humbly uh, share my thoughts with you on how we respond and interpret what is going on around us, not as Americans, but as Christians. And perhaps if I could sum the sermon up, the sin of the American church is that we have intertwined those two things what it means to be American, and what it means to be Christian into one thing. And that is 
to me, if you read what I wrote in the email to the church, that is idolatry. There is no one in 1A. There is solely one. Our calling as baptized Christians to be followers of Jesus and everything else follows from that. So um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do if I was going to try and speak to you now or play the sermon. I'm going to be quiet and play the sermon and trust what I said when I came in this morning at six o'clock is what we all need to hear. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I was going to say, if you're like me, you saw the events of this past week, but you don't have to be like me to see these events that went on. You could be the polar opposite. And it seems like if you had a heartbeat, you saw what was happening in our country. You saw these images of people storming the U.S. Capitol, of breaking down windows, of uh, carrying podiums throughout, of going into high-ranking governmental offices and putting their feet up on desks, of calling for uh, the hanging of some of these leaders, uh, of people carrying the Confederate flag down the halls of Congress, of people wearing shirts as part of this crowd that said 6MWE, 6 million wasn't enough, referring to the Holocaust that killed, murdered, Six million men, women, and children, people of the Jewish faith. And you were appalled by it. You were abhorred by it. You were disgusted by it. And then in that same crowd, <laughs> in that same crowd, those same people are carrying crosses, are carrying flags, that say, Trump is my president, Jesus is my savior. They are carrying signs, I can visibly see the sign in my head, this big yellow sign that says, Jesus saves, written in black. And then you're disgusted even more, or I hope we're disgusted even more so. And so I can't stand here before you this morning, whether it would be in person, whether it's sitting in front of cameras on Zoom, whether it's in front of an empty sanctuary and you're on a computer on TV watching this on YouTube, and not talk about these events that are going on in our midst. So I do that today humbly. I do that today not knowing everything, but I do that today to help us learn how to be a better follower of Jesus, and how do we interpret and respond to the world around us from a faith-based perspective, from a perspective that comes from doing our best to try and follow Jesus and from no other perspective. And so if I had to title my sermon this morning, I, as you know, I normally don't title my sermons. If I had to title my sermon, I was going forth back and forth between two different. The sin of American Christianity. Or I might call it the sin of American nationalism. But I think more appropriate is the sin of American Christianity, which leads to American nationalism. But let's start with Jesus, and then we'll get to those other things. 
This Sunday is a baptism of our Lord Sunday. So here I am, situated, stationed in front of the baptismal font. And because of the day that it is the baptism of our Lord, we have our baptismal candle lit. It is also the first Sunday of Epiphany. And so uh, we have our Epiphany star now above that I think you can probably see about half of it from the angle I have over our baptismal font. Because today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. If Advent is, God's about to do something. A child is going to be born. Looking forward to God's actions. If Christmas is, God acted, the child was born. Epiphany asks and answers the question, who is this child that was born? And that comes in our first reading of every Sunday of Epiphany through the scripture of the baptism of Jesus. So we hear loud and clear God declaring on this man Jesus, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And so now for the rest of Epiphany, we ask the question, or we do try to answer the question, Who is this child? What does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? How do we know that? But about the life of Jesus, we know that at the end, everyone deserted him. No one was left. He carried his own cross. All his friends deserted him. Family hid out. And when people asked, hey, I saw you with him, those who were closest to him said, not me. We know on the cross he died alone, exposed, humiliated, abandoned. But that wasn't the only time in the life of Jesus in which people left him. That was the culmination of it. And it occurred earlier, you know. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did people abandon Jesus? Why did they, why did they, were they scared away? Why couldn't they stay by his side? Why were they compelled to run away? It's because the message of Jesus isn't easy, is it? You see, Jesus was as I said before, an equal opportunity offender. There wasn't anybody he didn't make mad if you had any kind of power in your life. And Jesus, because he lived a different story, his power wasn't tied to any of their stories. He was free to critique it. Jesus was easily born into, was born into a world where he easily could have been, end up being a Pharisee. But he wasn't, so he was free to critique the Pharisees. Jesus was born into the world where he could have bought into the Essenes story, right? The Essenes, these people that wanted to rise up violently against Rome. But he wasn't, so he was free to critique the Essenes story. Jesus very easily was was born into a world where he very easily could have... uh, bought into and lived out the Roman story. But he wasn't. Therefore, he was free to critique the Roman story because his power was not tied up in it. 
Jesus lived by a different story. Therefore, he could look at all those other stories and not be worried about having to justify it or tweak it or meld it in with something else to feel better about it because that wasn't his ultimate story. He knew he belonged to someone and somewhere else. So Jesus, when he went out, was concerned, it seemed like, about one thing. Were people being treated by the, by the way that God says they should be treated? Were they given love and respect and dignity? Not because of what they have done, but solely because of who they are. A living, breathing human being who is loved by the creator of the universe. Which means when he encountered any story that wasn't doing that, that wasn't loving people with, and treating them with dignity and respect that is inherent to them, he called them out on it. So he had to speak out up against other stories. And the people who clung to these other stories that said, this is the way we order our life. This is who belongs where. This is how everything functions. Because Jesus didn't buy into those stories, he was free to say where they had strayed. And if you had bought into one of those stories and believed that was how the world ultimately worked and you heard Je Jesus critique it, you didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. Unless you're one of those oppressed people of the day, unless you're one of those marginalized people of the day, unless you're one of the people who had the boot of the neck of somebody else on their throat, you didn't hear what, what Jesus wanted to have to say. In fact, we have scripture in John in which halfway through Jesus' ministry, everybody has left. Everybody has left. Nobody wants to remain around him. He's just left with a few disciples at this point. And Jesus goes to Peter, are you also going to leave me? Are you also going to leave me? Are you going to return to those other stories? Is that the life you want? We're going to come back to Peter's answer. This is the sin of American Christianity that leads to, in my opinion, or as it can lead to, because you can get there in other ways, the sin of American nationalism. We have the story of America. It's a great story, parts of it, but we have what's called the American dream. Anybody can succeed here. Anybody from anywhere in the world can come legally. <laughs> I don't know if we have time to unpack that. And if you're willing to work, 
to get an education, anyone can succeed. We buy into this story. We live this story. We breathe this story. We teach it to our kids. We confess it before sporting events when we say the Pledge of Allegiance or sing the national anthem or kids before school when they pledge allegiance. We build it up and essentially what we are saying is America is the greatest country on the face of the earth and in the history of the world. That is the story that proliferates among us. And it proliferates among Christians as well. But here's what happens when you buy into a story, hook, line, and sinker. You become blind. You want that story to be true so bad, you minimize or even ignore anything that might tell you the contrary to it. Because you want your story to be true. We want the American story, as we have heard it, in its best possible light, to be the overarching, overriding story that defines all other stories. And when we think that, we don't see everything else that goes on. When that becomes our primary story, that's what we want it to be. And we won't, we are very limited in our ability to see other things. We might see part of it. We can acknowledge slavery occurred, but we don't acknowledge the lasting effects that slavery still has on us. We can acknowledge somebody lived here before we came. But do we understand, are we willing to say, we live on stolen lands? We raped, murdered, and pillaged people who were here first. And we have a day in which we celebrate Columbus coming to do it. When our story is our defining story, we don't want to see the ugliness attached to it because then what? You mean maybe that story that was true, that we wanted to be true, isn't, has to be tweaked? Nobody wants to admit wrongdoing. Nobody, maybe a little bit. Nobody wants to go to the depth of it, and this is how I know, because <laughs> we all do it. Simple examples. 2016 Cubs, right? year they won the World Series. I remember sitting across having coffee with a friend, and we were talking about baseball. He was a, he was a White Sox fan, also from the Chicago area. Um, <clears throat> and I was saying something about how much I liked this Cubs team because they were young, inexperienced, uh, I, cheap or low payroll that played because they loved the game and he stopped. He's like, what do you mean a cheap or a low payroll? Not at all. They bought the team no different than anybody else. 
I said, no, they didn't. Look at, you know, all these young players they have. And he's like, you're right, they have young players. And they also have this player and this player and this player that they bought. Their payroll is one of the top five in baseball. And I said, no, it's not. It is one of, you know, it's probably in the top half. But we're not the Yankees. We're not the Dodgers. We're not what the Red Sox have become, no offense. He's like, I bet you're wrong, right? And I defended it, defended it, defended it. And I said, uh, all right. He Googles it up, shows it to me. Top five salaries in 2016. Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, Giants, who had just finished up winning three World Series out of six years, and then the Chicago Cubs. And I said, yeah, well, the Cubs might be behind that payroll, but the vast majority of the roster is this young, inexperienced, cheap team. They only have maybe a couple, you know, a, a couple big money people. And he's like, what does that matter? They still had to go out and sign them. Their payroll is still this. What you are saying is not correct. And man, did we argue over that because I didn't want to believe the team that I love was more like something else that I despised. And I refuse to believe it over something as insignificant as the payroll of the 2016 Chicago Cubs. If we can't admit we were wrong with things as insignificant as that, What is it going to be when it is stuff that really matters? When it's not just about a baseball game, but it's something that we have been passing on from generation to generation, this story. Are we going to want to admit that maybe it's not as bright and shiny as we think it is? The word nationality has a root word in it. It's called natio. Natio means birth. So when, national, when you ask somebody someone's nationality, you're asking them their birthplace, their birth, origin of birth, right? And our nationality defines our stories that we live into. They're the ones we are given originally that says, this is who you are. This is the life you are being born into that you will move throughout. Baptism is a second birth. Back to Jesus. Baptism of our Lord Sunday. Notice when the baptism of Jesus occurs. It doesn't occur at the end of his life. It occurs at the beginning of his life. We have this passage from Mark. It is Mark chapter 1, verse 4, in which we get the baptism of Jesus. So the reason why Jesus doesn't buy into the Pharisee story, the Essene story, the Roman story, when he gets into his public ministry is because he is told in his baptism, those aren't your stories. You have a second birth. A second life that defines all of these other stories. That is what you live into. So Jesus is removed from those things. And then is able to look at them and critique them. 
and to name it for what it really is. When we are so enmeshed in the American story, we can't see racism where it really occurs because we don't want to put the ding on America. Because if America's history is really as grotesque as it might be with, with slavery, then the greatest country in the face of the planet doesn't have that in its history doesn't have lasting effects that are still going on today. Do you see what I mean? In baptism, we are given a new birth that removes us from all other stories and allows us to look back at them and critique them and to say, there is one thing and one thing only that defines us and that defines the way I live. And that is the love of God revealed to me in Jesus Christ, which means I want that love conveyed to anybody and everybody. So I am not concerned, is it a Republican president, a Democratic president, a Christian president, a Jewish president, a Muslim president? My question is, are you going to do policies that treat everybody with the inherent dignity, worth, and respect that they have within them? There's a great... I'm not going to get the quote right, but uh, Luther had said, and Mark Edwards, I'm sorry if I butcher it. I would be, rather be ruled by a wise Muslim than a foolish Christian. <laughs> right? I want someone in any system of power and authority who is willing to look at things in a way of critique to improve and not so tied to an idea that we can't look at it openly and honestly. And that incurs within the church. The church will never fully be able to move forward unless we can move, remove ourselves from a story that we were taught about how church operates, the infrastructure and say, that's not what our faith is about. Our faith is this, and that's what we're here to do. And if any of this has to go away, then so be it. America will never heal from its racism unless it can openly and honestly acknowledge all of the racist things that are going on. America will never deal from its sexism unless it can openly and honestly Name those things of where it takes place. Christians should be leading the way in that. We should never have our faith and power intertwined. Because then we're worried about losing power. And not living our faith. They are separate Back to Peter and Jesus. Jesus asks Peter a question, Lord, to whom shall... Or Jesus asks Peter the question, are you also going to leave me? Peter's response is one that we know I shared before. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's response is one where it says, I am rejecting all those other stories out there. 
You have one that will last. You have one that I don't need to cling to to stay in power because it's not based in that kind of power. It's based in love and service and humility and kindness and gentleness and self-control and patience and peace. As Christians, that's what we are called to do. That's what we're told occurs in our baptism, in our second birth. We are given a new story to live into. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy other stories or participate in them. But there is only one story that defines us. The Christian story, the story of God being fully revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what baptism is saying. In our baptismal words that we say each time we do one, right? Baptism is so much a passive action on our part. God is the actor. God is proclaiming. God is speaking. That this child is loved. That you have a new story to live into. One with meaning and purpose, right? So the response of parents is to say, we're going to teach you about this new story and help you live into that. So that, right, we do this so the result, it's not just about do you have certain information in your head, but it's so that a specific life is led that makes a difference in the world to make it more, well, let me tell you to make it more what? This is what we say in baptism. We're gonna, parents are going to teach these things so that your child may learn to trust God. Proclaim Christ through word and deed. Care for others and the world God made and work for justice and peace. You have been given a second birth to do those things anywhere and everywhere and to critique it when you don't see it happening. To care for the world God made and to work for justice and peace. So this is what I ask you to do right now. If you're by yourself, Mark yourself with the cross when I say, if you're with somebody, turn to them, mark a cross on their forehead, and they're going to mark one on your forehead. And as you do these things, listen to these words that were said, that we say at our baptism, and similar ones might have been said at your baptism. Go ahead, mark yourself with the cross. If you have water nearby, do that first. You are a beloved child of God marked with the cross of Christ forever and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.